this South American soccer an in-depth look at the action across the whole continent, providing you with a tactical, analytical and critical view supported by Pinnacle's unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. The World Cup now only a couple of months away. South American nations make their final preparations with friendlies this week. And one of the qualifying sides has been able to breathe a little sigh of relief earlier this month. We take a look at that decision, look ahead to these coming weeks, the games coming up, and we look ahead to the Commonwealth Sudamericana final at the end of the month. As ever, I'm joined by Simon Edwards in Colombia. Hi, good afternoon. Looking forward to getting into everything today. And Tom Robinson in Edinburgh. Hey, good to be back, guys. Yeah, as Simon said, it's uh, it's good to chat about South American football, especially when we've got the World Cup dawning ever closer on us. So, yeah, looking forward to discussing it with you guys. Yeah, well, we seem to have been talking about the, the roads of the World Cup for a long time. Now, with it being two months away, it very much does seem there. We're now in an international break. The teams are playing friendlies, so we're starting to see managers make those maybe last tweaks, last opportunities to look at some players. And the World Cup does now seem very much on the horizon. Um, The storyline, of course, that we will come to first has been one which has been talked about a lot over the last month because it involves one of the South American teams that has qualified, Ecuador. And that was, of course, cast into some doubt over recent weeks. Um, but Simon, we do now have some sort of a resolution. It seems as though Ecuador can rest easy and start preparing for Qatar. Um, so can you just give us an outline of, of exactly what's been going on and, and what the situation of players right now? Yeah, so it looks as though FIFA have settled the case. There's subject to an appeal, but you, you think at this stage Chile might give up. <laughs> we shall see. But it definitely looks as though Ecuador's place at the World Cup is settled. Uh, Byron Castillo, who's a, a right back, um, who was well, the, the 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 place of birth has been the disputed factor in this this question. Um, allegations he was born in uh, Tumaco across the Colombian border there's a very fluid border there between Colombia and Ecuador players play games in the other side of the border and then come back again so it's a very loose issue Um, and also obviously you know registrations of births in in some rural areas of Colombia and Ecuador uh, aren't always uh, the easiest thing to keep track of so basically um, the the documentation presented by Castillo had a certain date of birth, had a certain name, and Chile were claiming that, that both the date of birth and name were incorrect and that Ecuador had, to some extent, or had failed to do their due diligences and presented a player who was actually born in Colombia as an Ecuadorian. Um, there's been a long debate about this and there's been lots of questions asked. Uh, the decision was in, uh, initially approved by a judge in Ecuador who said, no, we're happy with the documents provided that he is an Ecuadorian. Um, Since then, there's been audio recordings come out where Castillo has said, has admitted his age is slightly different, his name is slightly different. uh, And this has kind of given fresh hope to this Chilean legal campaign. Um, They were quite hopeful and there was lots of reporting in the the press, including in the UK, that this might result in a big change. Um, However, FIFA have ruled that he is an Ecuadorian national um, in accordance to their rules. I think the key issue in this this question is whether or not there may have been discrepancies in, in a document presented years and years ago. He's been in Ecuador for 20 plus years at this point. Uh, so he more than meets the citizenship requirements of Ecuador. 
Um, there may have been some questions over some details on one of his documents, um, but I think FIFA have decided. My interpretation is that Ecuadorian officials went through all the process to kind of verify what they had is correct. Um, and in the end, you know, regardless of, of whether there was a discrepancy in one of the documents presented years and years ago, it looks as though he meets all of the nationality requirements and they're happy with that. So unless uh, Chile want to keep this going, it looks as though Ecuador can, can rest assured that their place at the World Cup is guaranteed. And it's definitely an interesting team, which I think is going to be a lot of fun to follow at the World Cup. So, yeah, I'm less excited by Chile, to be honest. So I'm, I'm happy from a sporting perspective to see Ecuador's young side make it to the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, we've been singing the praises throughout these podcasts when we were going through the qualification process of Ecuador. We never really, I think, any of us expected it to come out any differently with these appeals that they were going to be booted out of the World Cup at this stage. How do you assess after this perhaps stressful period and the uncertainty over their position, but how do you assess them going into the World Cup now only two months away? Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to look at it as probably something that's going to give them that extra fire in their belly and and fuel to say, look, you know, all you have to do is pin that up on the dressing room wall and say, look, they didn't want you here, even though if it was a complete non-story that we always knew was going to be ruled in Ecuador's favour at this late stage. I think that's it's good that it's over in terms of something they don't have to worry about, but I definitely think it's something they can use to, to sort of fire them on even more than this young, exciting squad who's, who's you know, it's going to be the first World Cup for many of them. And, and yeah, as, we, as we've said, they're, they're looking really exciting. I mean, this, um, you know, you look at the squad now and it's full of players sort of 25 and under. There's lots of players now based overseas. There's a real, obviously, Brighton contingent with, you know, Estupinian, um, Caicedo, and to a lesser extent, Sarmiento, um, all part of that squad. And, you know, I think the more in any national team, you've got players who, who are playing with each other week in, week, week out. That's going to help things. You've got quite a big contingent who are, who are based in Belgium, um, which again, I think is smart from the you know, Belgian clubs looking at a undervalued league and, and bringing players across as a foot stepping stone into Europe. You've got Hincapié, um, you know, only 20 years old and already one of the more experienced players in that um, Ecuador defence and, you know, playing for big clubs now in, in Germany and, you know, you've got a decent contingent in MLS, um, in Mexico. There's a real variety about this squad and I think that's going to bode well for their for their chances obviously they're young they're inexperienced they could be overawed at the World Cup um, and that would be totally understandable um, but you know this this squad that they've picked going um, into the friendlies against Saudi Arabia and uh, and Japan has got a few you know, even newer, younger, interesting names as well. You know, we've got William Pacho, who's come through the IDV um, Academy and is now in Belgium and is is really, really highly rated. We've got the likes of uh, Nilsson Angulo, who made his move to Anderlecht. Anthony Valencia, part of that IDV under uh, under 20 uh, Libertadores team. Patrickson Delgado, who's on the Ajax books as well. So it really looks like they're using these friendlies to to still try maybe some some even even younger even more unproven players on as well as that core that um have have done so well for them so it's going to be interesting obviously Saudi Arabia 
you know, that's a team that they would fancy themselves to, to beat. Maybe it's that classic pre-World Cup thing of let's play someone who's vaguely speaking from the same region as, as one of our opponents as a kind of, you know, like for like Qatar, maybe um, warm up for them, whether that's a, a smart move or anything like that, who knows. But, um, you know, it's it's going to be a, a good test and, and Japan as well. It's going to be a, a, a strong, well-drilled side that um, that will certainly give them some some differing styles to come up against and, and something that's going to uh, hold them in good stead but yeah it's it's a really exciting team um lots of players as we've we've said many times before in this podcast who who could really go on to boost their already rising profiles and um yeah it's um that 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 first game of the, of the world cup is going to be great for, for for them to 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 put down an early marker yeah, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about one of those clubs that's provided a lot of the young talents when we talk about the Copa Sudamericana final in the second half of this podcast. Um, but, but Simon, Tom mentioned a lot of the players there. Um, we've talked about a number of those really talented young players since episode one of this podcast. They've now really kicked on it and gone on to prove their worth by qualifying, first of all, for the World Cup. Um and I think we've all talked previously about the fact that they are a team that could potentially maybe cause a few upsets at the World Cup when you look at Group A. Um, however, if we were looking at it from the other side, is there anything from that squad that you look at at the moment and think there's obviously talent there, but they're still lacking something or somewhere on the pitch where you just have concerns for them going into the World Cup? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd say in attack with Valencia and Estrada, both players who can be a bit of a headache for the opposition, but neither like clinical top level European goal scorers uh, at the peak of their powers. So I'd say that's a little bit of a, I mean, you know, look, then it's hard to say that they're weak links given that they've played so many times for Ecuador and they've, they've got them to this world cup and they've kept them at a good level, but they definitely aren't as exciting as the likes of Gonzalo Plata on the wing or Moises Caicedo in the middle or Hincapié you mentioned at the back. Perhaps it's just the age thing, you know, the, you know, the ceiling isn't quite as high with these kind of players. But my, my question is, do they have enough goals in attack? You know, in those key moments, these strikers, they're good, they're good players and they, they've done very well in South American qualifying. But are they good enough to find the net in those big decisive moments? And that, for me, potentially is the issue. Because I think if you put if you put Cifuentes into the midfield alongside Moises Caicedo, then that gives it a really nice balance and, and tightens it up nicely. And then you can have a, a really good solid core with the, with the fullbacks flying forward, as, as we'd love to see from Ecuador. Um, Gonzalo Plata uh, on, on one wing as well and then it's just for me there's just those two spots that they're, they're fine players they're just not quite at the same same level or the same um, you know danger and threat so for me that's probably the question uh, again these are solid solid consistent performance for Ecuador but are they good enough at a World Cup to make the difference in those key moments um, and then uh, and then obviously you have loads of youngsters but I think what we've seen is they're fearless they're energetic they, they, they have no concerns about getting on the ball and moving it around and they've they faced up to Brazil and Argentina and given them really tough games so um, I wouldn't expect these these really impressive youngsters to to, to be less than, than what they can be in the big occasion but obviously when you've got a team with such key players who are so young obviously there's a question about experience as well but um, but yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. I just don't know if they'll get enough goals, but I think they're very exciting. And if it all clicks, they'll be one of the teams to, to, to really enjoy and to really watch at the World Cup. And coming out of it, we've got a January transfer window. I think the likes of Moises Caicedo, the likes of Cifuentes, the likes of Incapié, the likes of Gonzalo Plata, 
could be, you know, adding a zero to their transfer value. I mean, Moises has already gone way up in his valuations yeah. from Premier League performances, but you know, this could really, you know, add 20, 30 million to the transfer fee if they have a really big World Cup. Yeah, certainly. Um, as you say, we've already seen a lot of uh, numbers being touted around Moises Caicedo and I think Brighton at some point in probably the pretty recent near future will uh, make a pretty hefty profit on the young midfielder. Tom, that brings us on to our, our favourites, not just from South America, but our World Cup favourites, Brazil. They qualified, of course, unbeaten in South America. And this week they're in France to play two friendlies um, against Ghana and Tunisia. Um, Chiche's named a pretty familiar squad. Um, there's perhaps still a, a question mark because of some injuries now in the fullback positions, which is, again, something we've talked about previously. But... Going ahead into this month, the World Cup around the corner now. How are you assessing the, the favourites for the tournament? Yeah, they're, they're looking really strong, aren't they? And I think there's a good reason why they're right up there with with the favourites. Obviously, in, in this friendly, Pinnacle has the 1.180 to beat Ghana, which um, just shows how strong they are against another side that's made it to the World Cup, a side that's you know boosted, uh, bolstered with uh, some some new... Um, players who've, who they've brought in from diaspora um, who it'll be interesting to see from that side of things. But in terms of just Brazil, they've just got so much firepower. They're just a well-drilled, well-oiled machine that is just capable of grinding out games, capable of blowing you away on the counter if they need to be. You know, they're, they've got a bit of everything. And, and, and for large parts of the qualification campaign, they didn't really excite us. They they were just getting it done in consummate, but maybe uninspiring fashion. But towards the end of the qualifying, they, they really let loose. And and now we're seeing some of those young players like Anthony come to the fore. You know, he could have a really big World Cup. Obviously, I'm sure playing in France, Neymar's not going to be too unhappy about the, you know, the short hop to to some of those games and um and some of the other players that that play um for PSG that's probably a bit of an eye on that so I'm, I'm sure that's got something to do with it but you know they're they're ready they're they've got everything that a champion needs you know solid defensive midfielders good mixed of uh, center backs as you mentioned fullbacks the only area where surprisingly for a nation that's produced so many they are strangely weak but I think that in a in tournament football you don't necessarily have to be playing the most free-flowing um you know high pressing game it's going to be a bit more keep it solid at the back and they've got more than enough in the final third to um to, to blow most teams away so I think these friendlies is just to keep everyone ticking over maybe try a few names here and there but you know we're not going to see a, a massive revolution or evolution at this stage from from Chiches Brazil. So yeah, it's um it's just going to be more of the same, really. Just um, consummate um, professional victories is is all I can see for Brazil right now, as per the pinnacle odds. Yeah, I mean we've become very used to seeing that in South America. Now we see them doing it against some African opposition going into the World Cup. I mean Simon. We've obviously been talking about the, the incredible players available to Chiche. Now, they're now into their second World Cup under the same manager, so they've become even more perhaps formidable, becoming more accustomed to, to what he demands from them. 
Um, perhaps the only problem at the moment is how on earth Brazil select their final 26 because we saw when they named this squad a lot of talk and a lot of Arsenal fans particularly questioning how on earth that some of their contingent weren't involved in this squad doesn't necessarily mean they won't be going to the World Cup but um, when you're looking at that squad who are you looking at as potential major casualties shall we say of players that might not end up going to the World Cup at all? Yeah, it's, it's going to be tricky. I mean, particularly in those wide forward areas, uh, as we've come to see. And it'll be interesting to see as well where, where they see Neymar playing, whether he's going to be one of those wingers. I mean, they've got so many options in, in wide areas. Is he going to be a, a winger? Is he going to be a false nine? Is he going to be a number 10? Because that's going to free up some spots. Is he going to play a number of positions? It'll be interesting to see in that regard. But yeah, as you say, I mean, the likes of Gabriel Martinelli have been in great form, Gabriel Jesus uh, playing really well. And see these guys missing out shows you how much quality they have. I think with Jesus, probably um, he's done enough for Chiche to know what he has with him. So I think he'll take some heart in that and, and probably, you know, renewed form and, uh, and a history with the national team should mean that he gets in in the end. Um, but yeah, as you see, you know, Rafinha, Rodrigo, Vinicius Junior, Anthony, like the, the, num- the, the options they have are incredible. Now, obviously the issue is None of those are number nines. So that again, you know, again, for a Brazil side to, to not have kind of an absolute bang on guaranteed starting number nine is another interesting, interesting one. And then do you try to get these, these kind of second strikers? You try to get Neymar as a false nine. Do you have them breaking from wide areas? You can see them doing that potentially having Neymar dropping off and then having the likes of Vinicius and running in from, from wide areas. Uh, but it's a lot of quality. I think another question for Brazil as well is, is that midfield? Um, obviously, uh, it'd be interesting to see what they do with that midfield. Do they want another passer in there? Do they want to kind of... Because obviously, Fred has been popular and important because of the energy he brings and his ball winning. But maybe you bring in someone like Bruno Guimarães and to bring in kind of some more passing ability in those games where Brazil are in control. Um, but it's, it's important to, to consider as well the way Chiche approaches these games. He, he overwhelms the opposition, gets a goal or two, and then it will let them throw everything at, at Brazil and, and Brazil will kind of see them off with kind of a solid organized defensive unit. And then there's always that incredible pace on the counter. So it'd be interesting at the World Cup to see how much variety Brazil have in their, their style of play. Um, do they go for the counter attack with the pace they have? Do they look to assert themselves? You know, what we've seen in qualifying at times is this spell, 20 minute spell, they'll get a goal or two and then they'll sit off and just make the opposition look completely impotent and unable to throw anything at them. And then in the last 10 minutes, hit them with a couple more goals. Be interesting to see if that's still the approach. But if when they go up against a really top European side, will it be more reactive? Will it be more counter-attacking? Or will they look to control the game a bit more? They've got the options of both of those. But Chiche generally looks to respond and contain and control the opposition um, without dominating possession or, or taking too many risks. So I think that... That midfield spot in this upcoming friendlies will be really interesting to keep an eye on and see do they play a second ball player at the base of the midfield alongside Casemiro or are they so focused on the, the energy and the ball winning and the defensive side of things that they'll, they'll stick with someone like Fred who's more limited on the ball. Yeah, I mean, despite being such a, a, a familiar squad, there's still a lot of those questions to be answered in terms of the starting eleven going into the World Cup. Just before we leave that subject then, Tom, on the, on the subject of the number nine, because as Simon just said there, they've got plenty of options from players that could perhaps play not out of position, but not as traditional number nines at the, the point of the spear, so to speak. 
But within the squad, there are some other options as well, or perhaps not even selected. Gabriel Jesus, of course, had a really tough time at the last World Cup and in some ways impacted his career because we saw him then shift out wide. He's now re-established himself through the middle with that move to Arsenal and seems to have really gathered the confidence of being able to do that. Do you think that puts him perhaps potentially near the front of the queue of being Brazil's number nine in inverted commas? Or, or do you think they might even end up looking elsewhere, like someone like Pedro, who's been great in South America? Yeah, it is a really fascinating one because from a Eurocentric or Premier League-centric focus, you know, you look at Gabriel Jesus and you think, well, in the form that he's in right now, he's been let off the leash. You'd be mad not to take him. But you've, it's really important to, to sort of realise how the public perception can be massively different when it comes to a Brazilian audience. So much as, you know, they don't necessarily, I mean, the Premier League has watched a lot, obviously, but so much is put on those national team performances and you can quite easily be written off by, you know, certainly the last World Cup, lack of goals. And certainly it's something that, you know, lots of people have spoke about how that mentally affected him. Even if he's, feeling the love at Arsenal and and playing with a renewed sense of freedom, that could all quickly wither away um in the national team if he if he does get a start and it doesn't go great for him straight away. I mean I th- I think he's still got to be in the running for sure. I, th- I think Cheech knows what to expect from him and there's a good chance that he's still going to call him up just even though he didn't necessarily pl- um get called up for this squad. Um but it is, you know, it is a sig- significant possibility. Um, I, I still think he'll make it. I think he'll probably get the edge over someone like um, Matthias Cunha um, and probably even Pedro, although, you know, Pedro has been fantastic in the Libertadores. But um, realistically, you know, Gabriel Jesus is so much more of a modern forward. Whether he gets a start, I think that's a that's a bigger leap right now because obviously you've got Vinicius Jr. in, in the form of his life. Neymar's an absolute guarantee. You've got other good wide players who, who can sort of play a role as well. But I, I think you're probably more likely to see Cheech go with perhaps a Richarlison or a Firmino, someone who's done that role for him before and who's got that experience and and perhaps isn't quite tainted and doesn't have those questions about his confidence and his ability of whether the national team shirts weighs too heavy on him. So, I mean, I think it would be a big, big call to, uh, to leave him out. Um, but we shouldn't necessarily jump to massive conclusions just because for this particular set of friendlies, he's, he's not there. I think there's, there's still some, you know, credit in the bank, shall we say. Yeah, certainly. Um, that brings us on, of course, to the team that went toe-to-toe toe, toe to toe with Brazil during the World Cup qualifying, also unbeaten. Simon, Argentina, Pinnacle, having them as the fourth favourites to lift the World Cup in Qatar. And they come into this off the back of that extraordinary unbeaten run that goes back a couple of years. The momentum very much with Lionel Scaloni's squad. Again, like Brazil, a very settled squad, as we've seen named this time. Very few surprises and probably even fewer surprises once we get to the World Cup, barring any injuries. Um, they're in the USA this week to play two friendlies that you'd expect them to win pretty comfortably against Honduras and Jamaica. So we don't really need to read too much into those results or those performances. However, 
we do need to talk about Argentina as potential candidates at the World Cup. So, Simon, do you think they're worth that that billing as potentially fourth favourites for the World Cup? Um, I I think every month that passes, they kind of can justify that more and more. I think I think the thing to focus on is the progress that they've made, which has been incredible. Before the previous World Cup, they were an absolute disaster, an absolute mess. And I think in many ways, while a European audience might have seen them at that World Cup and thought, oh, they haven't really you know, performed as well as they could have. From a South American perspective, I, they kind of massively <laughs> exceeded my expectations by going out narrowly to, uh, to France uh, in such a high-scoring game. So they were uh, an absolute mess. And it's incredible the progress they've made in terms of just, just getting the group really unified, building a really solid creative balance midfield to, to kind of complement Messi solving the issues in goal with Martinez uh, Romero coming into the defence and, and sorting a lot of the defensive issues out um, so overall the progress is incredible uh, they've won a, a continental title in the, in the years uh, since the last World Cup so um, whether their fourth best is you know full favourite is a question but I think they're in the conversation and I think that's that's an incredible credit to this group of players, to Messi, to the manager who's done such a, an amazing job. So I think Argentinian fans will be will be happy to see the team going into this tournament unified, uh, optimistic, positive. Um, and I think that is the huge progress because, you know, I remember the run-up to the last World Cup, they were just, any anyone who's ever scored a goal in the Argentine league was getting a cap up front in the in attack. And it was, it was, a, it was a mess. I felt, I felt bad for Messi. But but now I think Messi is, is loved. I think Messi trusts the players around him. I think that's probably the key difference as well. He, he, he trusts the midfielders to get him the ball in advanced areas. He doesn't have to drop back to his own penalty box to try and make everything happen. So I think that's been a big, big change. I think Messi, now with Argentina, may well have fewer touches, but he'll have the touches in the areas that are important and decisive, and he'll feel that there's runners around him. He'll feel that he can trust the players behind him to get him the ball. So yeah, this Argentina side is massively, massively improved and unified. And I think in a short tournament, this confidence, this attitude... This spirit, you know, we saw it way back a couple of Copa Americas ago in the, the third, fourth playoff, you Messi moaning about referees and getting angry and getting furious and getting into fights. I think since then we've seen a Messi who's a leader and is kind of embodying some of that Argentine grit and spirit, which I think is, is inspiring those around him. So whatever happens to the World Cup, I think Argentine fans are going to enjoy it more than the last one. Uh, what do you guys think? You know, I do. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a fairly low bar, I suppose. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the progress made in four years is frankly quite astonishing because I think at the end of the last World Cup, more people probably would have thought Argentina at risk of not qualifying for Qatar rather than going there as Copa America champions and having gone the entire qualification unbeaten. I mean, I think people would have thought you're mad if you suggested that would be the, the alternative. Um, so for that, they, they deserve enormous credit. And for that reason, they go to, world, to the World Cup among the favourites. And, and it's hard to begrudge them of that, really, when you consider they've lifted that heavy burden that lay on the shoulders of those players by winning the Copa America. I think that psychologically is a big factor. And you mentioned there Messi having a, a lot more trust in the team. We also see, I think, the happiest Messi seems to have been with the national team probably in his entire career. I mean, you see him linking up now with the Argentina squad, you know, with a big smile on his face, very clear, strong connections with a lot of the players, which 
again, at a time, I think you, you kind of struggled to think whether he would get that because he was so close with the, the previous generation, with the likes of Mascherano and Aguero. But then you see him now with the same kind of connections with the likes of Rodrigo de Paul and with Lautaro Martinez and Leandro Paredes, all these players that have become integral to Lionel Scaloni. Um, Tom, this week, we, we've seen them name that squad with all of those familiar faces in there again. The two that probably were most surprising among that group that have gone to the USA, one is very much you'd imagine in contention go to go to Qatar. The other one is maybe with more uh, an eye to the future. But Enzo Fernandez and Thiago Almada, the two that probably drew the most discussion from the group that have gone to the USA. Um, looking at those two players, what do you expect from them this week? And then, as I just alluded to there, what do you expect from them going forward to potentially a World Cup? Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've sort of nailed it there in terms of Enzo Fernandez, definitely someone who's just in a brilliant um, run of form at the moment. Fantastic for River since the start of the year and has you know, he's been good for a long time. Let's let's not be around the bush. He's, he's clearly someone who we all thought had a future in the national team. Maybe we didn't see it um, developing quite this quickly. And the fact that he's just taken to life in Benfica and the Champions League like a duck to water just shows that he is, he is ready for this step up. And I, I think it's important for him to be there and in the squad and getting some minutes in these friendlies because one, it's you know, playing against Honduras and, and Jamaica is, is pretty much as as kind as you can get. And and certainly Pinnacle have Argentina heavy favourites to to win their 1.094 to beat Honduras. Um so this is an ideal opportunity to to give him a run, to get him, you know, settled in the squad. Yeah, you probably aren't going to learn too much more about him, but I think it's important that the settled midfield, which is probably the first thing that Scaloni got right and and sort of put in place at the start of his um, regime was you know having that Paredes de Paul and Lo Celso midfield three and there's probably been times where maybe we've seen their club form hasn't necessarily been as good for a multitude of reasons no, no doubting their quality and that they can always turn it on for the national team but I think having someone like Enzo Fernandez who's capable of playing a little bit deeper who can who can be that shuttler who, who goes um, and contributes in the final third as well um i think it's important to have that you know competition for places you look at look at the same for someone like alexis McAllister as well who's in um, absolutely brilliant form um for brighton too so you know i think having these guys really keeping the the, the favored three on their toes is important and and as you said almada very much, I think, more an eye for someone who's going to be a big part of this squad going forward. He's been lighting up MLS um, and, you know, it's good to see him thrive in, you know, a league that hasn't always necessarily been the best place for um, for young Argenti- Argentinians to, to go in and make an instant impact. So he's, he's someone who's clearly going to be a part of this national team in the future. Maybe there's just an eye on thinking, well, rather than, keeping our powder dry with him until after the World Cup. What if there's a few injuries to key players? He's one of those unique talents that could come in as a bit of a wild card if there's a few injuries and, and you know, contribute from the bench perhaps. So um, it's, it's, they're the two, obviously, the talking points, as you mentioned. I suppose the other the other things to, to, to have a, 
keep an eye on, I suppose, as well is whether Dybala can can come in and and show his form, given that he's sort of feeling the love at Roma and um, and doing well by all accounts. So th- that's going to be interesting to see if there's a role for him in this squad, um, and also whether they're going to use these friendlies to maybe try out that a partnership of uh, Lisandro Martinez and Christian Romero, given they're both performing at the highest level in the Premier League. Is Otamendi going to have a last hurrah, or are they going to change it this close to the the tournament? It's a bit of a bit of a bit of a risk potentially, um, but again, it's a chance to try them out. Maybe even give Perez a debut or Medina a bit more game time as well. So th- there's some interesting, you know, slight variations, and most people are, as as we said before, they're going to. No Argentina is one of the biggest names in football and say, well, of course, Argentina are going to be up there as favourites. But as you guys have spelled out, that was not the case. And it's it's easy to underestimate just what a almost perfect qualification cycle from going from where they were f- four and a bit years ago to where they are now. You couldn't almost write the script any better to how that has steadily developed. And, and we shouldn't take for granted the you know the position this this Argentina team are in and and vibes wise they are they've got the best atmosphere in of any squad going to this World Cup in in my eyes yes you know Pinnacle might have them as um, four favourites at eight point zero two zero to win the whole thing um, which I think as you guys have said feels about right maybe not right among the top three but just just behind you know you could see them getting all the way to the final you could also see them being narrowly edged out by a belgium or a, or a germany in a in a quarter final and then you know not being any shame in that really but semi-finals feels like a you know the, the type of aim that they should be achievable uh, achievably reaching any more brilliant any less bit of a disappointment but I think the you know more because it's Messi's last hurrah really than than any doubts about the long-term future of this team which is you know not even at its prime yet in a lot of the positions yeah it's going to be fascinating to see how they how they get on um and as you say seem perfectly placed to be able to go to the World Cup in just two months and really put down a challenge. Um, Which, of course, brings us on to our fourth and final qualifier for the World Cup, um, Uruguay. Uh, Simon, we talked about them during the qualification process at one time, looking very uncertain in case they were in in the event that they might not even qualify for the World Cup. They made that decision to change managers later on. They had a favourable run of fixtures at the end and then managed to put together a run of results to book their place at the World Cup. This week, they're in Europe taking on Iran and Canada as they continue their warm-ups. But how are we now looking at Uruguay after what was a difficult qualification period, um, but having settled a number of those problems, looking rejuvenated, and as a result, going into the World Cup with a lot more momentum than perhaps the fourth place position normally would. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think the, the the progress of Uruguay in recent months has been trying to kind of build a little bit more, focus more on that midfield with the likes of Betancourt and Valverde. They have some real high quality ball playing, complete midfielders. I'd say is what what those players represent. And then you've got the likes of Lucas Torreira, uh, Vecino, other good quality players who can come in and add some some bite into that midfield. 
And then you've got the likes of Giannis Gaeta, the kind of ball playing, uh, creative players, uh, and then some good quality and attack. So, and of, you know, Pelisti as well, it's been, it's been good for Uruguay. Um, they went to Manchester United and you know, been a little bit off the radar on an English perspective, but it's been good for Uruguay. So I think this is a, a Uruguay cha- team that's changed since the manager managerial change. Um, previously, in previous tournaments, we've seen an Uruguay with Godin, Jimenez at the back, Suarez and Cavani up top, and everyone else kind of complementing that those four world-class players. Uh, the times have moved on. Um, Godin is still there. Um, Jimenez is, is obviously a few years younger and is, is still a very important player. Araujo as well is a very, very good quality central defender who often plays as a right back because at fullback, they're not quite as strong Uruguay. Um, but in midfield, again, as I say, they're, they're looking to try and control possession more than they used to. Um, and obviously the question again is Cavani is still knocking about. I, I don't think he's in this current squad. Um, so that might be one of the fewer questions to ask. Suarez is still there, but he's playing in Uruguay now. This is the same player. Obviously, Darwin Nunez uh, at Liverpool is going to be the one to watch. Um, Tom's favourite. Um, so it'll be uh, interesting to see if he can kind of justify that massive price tag on an international stage. He hasn't established himself as a kind of guaranteed focal point starter for Uruguay, despite as well as he's done in the last couple of years in Europe. Um up until this point, but obviously there's still a little bit of time to the World Cup. So I think this Uruguay side has been dramatically moving in the right direction, but with a lot of unsettled questions. Um, the ingredients are all very good. There's good players there. There's good young players there. They've got a lot of variety in the quality they have. Some kind of smart technical midfielders like Diaz Carreta. They've got the complete midfielders with Valverde and um, Betancourt. They've got big mobile attackers like Darwin Nunez. They've got lots of things to work with. Um, and I think the the changes that they've made, because at times they played three at the back, they've, they've got a lot of options. But my concern is they may have too many options to, in the next two months to kind of get everything in place. So I think a good start will be really important for Uruguay. And these friendlies will be probably more important for Uruguay than any of the other South American nations, because there's still questions to be answered if they can get everything together very, very quickly, they have a team that can can challenge in the knockout stages of this World Cup. The progress has been great, but they've only got a couple of months and a couple of games to kind of decide where's the focus, who's their strikers, can you still play Godin, who are the fullbacks, do you need a, a Torreira in the midfield to add some bite, can you play Diaz-Cayeta against the strong teams? There's lots and lots of questions, so Tom's going to answer all those and uh, that will, I'll sit back and uh, see what he thinks. Well, there you go, Tom. What, what's your insight into where exactly would you go with that with that eleven? I mean, Simon's just spelled out there a lot of the question marks that would surround that squad, um, and ones that Diego Alonso has to come up with his perfect idea in the next two months. As Simon rightly says, these this week could be very important in that regard. Yeah, no, there's a there's a lot that's still to be decided, and and perhaps you know the appointment of Alonso was needed in terms of achieving that short-term aim of getting them to the World Cup, whether it's the right move for them to be a, a real player at this World Cup is is yet to be seen. It's still a lot to be decided. You look at the squad for this um, this set of friendlies and, and there's a clear um, move to 
bit, uh, being a bit more experimental with the defense more than anything. You know, there's no Godin, there's no Jimenez, there's no Coates, your, your, um, distant relative there, Peter. Um, and instead, apart from Martin Cáceres and Ronald Araujo, who let's remember has only got 11 caps for, for Uruguay still, there's, there's a lot of players who, um, are going to have a chance to try and make a make a name for themselves. Um, obviously, Rogel has, has got his move to to the Bundesliga. Um, Sebastian Cáceres is a player who's been highly thought of for a long time and has done well in Mexico. And and then you know you you have got some you know as, as much as maybe fullback hasn't been the strongest position for them. It's a real big chance for someone like Matias Oliveira, who's now at Napoli, playing some really good football, um, to to really stake a name for his his place in the starting eleven. So that's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting seeing Muslera come back into the squad. Do they go with a super experienced player who's who's got well over a hundred caps for the for the national team, who's been there, who's done it all, who's always been a really good servant, but has obviously had a big injury and and is you know, even before that injury, there were question marks about whether he's he's the man to go forward. Does does he come back in and and have a last hurrah at this World Cup, or do they stick with Rochette, who's who's been great for Nacional, but maybe isn't tested at that that highest level? So th- there's a lot of question marks. The, the midfield, as we said, is is probably the most settled of, of all the the areas, and and we've got to give some love to Valverde. He's blossoming into the player that I think we always knew he would become. He's one of those really unique players that you see at a young young age in South America and you just know straight away that there's there's no way they're not going to succeed at the highest level. But the fact that he's really taking on that, you know, um, starring role for Real Madrid and as well as just being like a hardworking player guy who'll slot into whatever position you put him into he's now really affecting games and he's still only 24 so there's a lot more to come from Valverde and I think he's going to be huge at this World Cup and I'd like to see Ugarte get a bit more game time as well because he's he's relatively new to the national team setup he's, he's getting Champions League football with sporting now and, and certainly doing well in, in what I've seen from uh, from him this season so yeah the, the midfield you know, feels like it's taking care of itself. Obviously, there's a bit of a changing of the guard up front, as Simon mentioned. And there's been some interesting, again, sort of left field shouts for for these set of friendlies. You know, we've got Canovio, who, you know, is a, is a hardworking, you might look like Forlan, but he's not quite as uh, cultured as him. But he's been doing great for uh, Atletico Paranaense, who've obviously got to the Libertadores final. We got Brian Ocampo in there, who's who's a really fun player now playing in Spain, and Satriano, who's who's looking like another absolutely brilliant uh, striking prospect. Who you know you'd, you'd like to see him maybe make his debut. So I, I don't think this is going to be close to what their their final um, squad's going to look like. There's still going to be a lot of chopping and changing, but that's Alonso's. That's the whole the whole idea he's come in and, and brought is that. I'm going to try lots of people. Everyone's got a fair chance and and he's certainly showing that right now. So there's strength and depth in this side. Um, if it all clicks, then as Simon said, they could, they could have a good run. Um, but perhaps it might come a little bit too soon before Alonso has a really settled side that we can really confidently expect them to, to to have a strong tournament. It's it's a really fascinating one and I'm I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, it's a fascinating week building up to the World Cup and, and as we 
hopefully laid out there, all four South American nations for, for different reasons offer their own areas of interest there. And it'll be great to follow them in a couple of months time in Qatar to see how they all get on. Um, you mentioned there, Tom, the, the Libertadores in passing, but before we, we wrap up this episode, um, we have to, of course, mention the other competition in South America, the other club competition, the Sudamericana, which, of course, has its final in now less than two weeks in, or on October the 1st in Cordoba. We will have the final of the Sudamericana. And, of course, it's going to be Sao Paulo against Independiente del Valle, a team that we've mentioned in passing already during this pod when talking about Ecuador, because the two now seem almost intertwined given the, the sharing of the talent there. Um, Simon, we've been talking about this competition throughout the knockout phases, assessing the teams. We've talked at great length about Sao Paulo. We've talked about Independiente del Valle. Now we know these two teams will be there after Independiente del Valle made relatively light work of Melgar in the end in their semi-final. Sao Paulo were worked a lot harder by Goianiense, the other Brazilian side eventually coming through on penalties. But those two results in their own right don't necessarily mean anything. So how are you looking ahead to the semi to the final, sorry, in 10 days time? And, and where are you sort of leaning towards? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, I mean, Pinnacle have decided they've, they've got a very clear idea of who they think are going to win. Uh, Sao Paulo at 1.769 with uh, IDV independent of Valle at 4.490 with the draw at 3.690. So, um, if uh, if we come down on the side of uh, Independiente del Valle, then uh, you know that, oh, that's a very interesting odds there for for that side. And I think there's good reason to believe that this IDV side could win the Copa Sudamericana. Um, they Pinnacle have them as outsiders, but I think that they're good. Um, obviously, an incredible semi final, two three 0 wins against uh, Melgar, who had been very strong in this competition. They've been kind of waving the flag for Peruvian football and doing a great job and and we saw the best of IDV in these two games to, to kind of put themselves down as, as real contenders for this final. Um, Sao Paulo, as you mentioned, found things much more difficult. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting one. Um, obviously, you know, with the final one-off game makes a big difference as well nowadays. Uh, once upon a time, it was over two legs, but the whole narrative is kind of shifted by having it on in one game. And it's, you know, with IDV, you know, Sao Paulo are the bigger club. Sao Paulo is huge. Sao Paulo is history. They have a massive backing, a big fan base. Um, but IDV have the greater international experience in recent years. Now, obviously, there's been many changes to the IDV setup, but this is a team that does well in these big one-off games and, and gets gets through. We've said in the Sudamericana, they haven't been at their most impressive. Perhaps this isn't their strongest crop of players, but they've got through to a Sudamericana final. So I think... Um, Sao Paulo will come into it as favourites, huge club, huge budget, the bigger stars. But I think IDV on a one-off game in a in the Sudamericana, uh, that's what they do. That's what they do. So I think they've got a, a pretty decent chance. It should be a really interesting game. But as I say, I think that one-off nature makes this one slightly different because, you know, if you get a goal early, then you've got the momentum, you've got something to defend. It shifts the whole narrative of the game. Often these finals are very, very tight. 
So I think the first goal will be will be key. But uh, interesting to hear what you guys think as well. Yeah, I mean, it's only a couple of years, of course, since that shift and Independiente del Valle already have experience of that. They won the Sudamericana a couple of years ago and they beat Colón in Asuncion. Um, there's a few players still from that team that are, that are still there, giving that experience to the squad. But a lot of new faces coming through, whether it be from their academy every year, they lose a few of those to European football. We've mentioned a few when discussing the Ecuador squad. Or, as again, we've mentioned on previous pods, they're excellent scouting and identifying talent from around South America and bringing in players who just seem to fit perfectly into their system. And one of the players that really impressed me, particularly in the semifinals, was a guy they picked up from the lower leagues in Argentina, Lautaro Diaz. He was someone who came in in the window just before the quarterfinals and came off the bench, I think, against Lanús, was playing out wide. But in the semifinals against Melgar, they played him through the middle as their central striker. And with his pace and his mobility to be able to run into the channels, he caused Melgar all sorts of problems, picked up a number of goals in the semifinals to power them through and just looks like another great bit of talent spotting from Independiente del Valle. Simon just gave us the odds there, Tom, and you'd look at it in a one-off game and certainly how impressive they were against Melgar where they just found that other level to be able to progress past the Peruvians. And you'd have to say that looks like a, a decent bit of value there going into just that one game final. For sure. Yeah, I, I think they're coming into their own and, and starting to peak in a way that um, Sao Paulo form wise, they've they've been, had a few bad spells lately. They've, they've not had a consistent run of wins. Whereas I feel like while this Independiente del Valle team perhaps hadn't really found its its style and it's it's form in the in the Libertadores is now a really really good unit and is is just peaking just when you'd want them to as you mentioned that Lautaro Diaz coming from Estudiantes Caseros and Villa Almine you know incredible pickup from them and, and there's there's a real Argentine um, feel to this um, to this Independiente del Valle squad. You know, you've got Pejerano who's been there forever. Uh, Faravelli is, is is an absolute key player for them. Carabajal doing well as as well. So as well as a, a team that we've always focused on the young players they bring through, and obviously we've got um, Angulo is the you know, the jewel in their, in their crown in terms of the young players coming through at the moment, along with um, Ramirez in goal, um, a big, big prospect um, as well. It's, it's been more their kind of clever scouting of Argentinian players and, um, and yeah, looking at other areas where they can find those gains and, and make the difference. And it, it could well be, uh, you know, without wanting to, to put, you know, mine and your Argentinian bias um, too heavily in the spotlight. You know, it could be Argentinians on either side who are making the difference. Jonathan Caleri has, has been banging them in this year. Galopo is a fantastic player. They've got Nahuel Bustos on the bench as well. So really, you know, we're talking about an Ecuador-Brazil final, but it's it's more of an all-Argentinian affair if, we, if we're being honest with ourselves. But no, I, th- I, th- I think... Um, Independiente del Valle have got a real chance here. Certainly worth a flutter um, for them to to pick up um, a, another victory at this level. And and just generally, I, th- I think it's it's going to be a real box office clash um, in Cordoba because they, these are probably two of the biggest names or most 
interesting, the ones that are going to get the eyeballs on them, you know, as much as going on and say have, have done really well, I'm certainly not mourning the fact they're not going to be in this final. It's if it, it feels like this is the kind of big stage that the, the Sudamericana can deliver and, um, and two sides who have, have got that identity, that history, the, the players on show who can, who can, you know, do something. So it's, it's pretty much set up as, as, as well as you could imagine. And, um, yeah, I definitely think that IDV have got a got a decent chance. I I wouldn't necessarily have them as favourites, but I think it's more fifty fifty than than perhaps um, the odds might have it. Yeah, certainly, as we I think we've all suggested there, the, the odds perhaps a little bit wide. Um, we talked there maybe more extensively about Independiente de Valle. So just to finish off, Simon. Tom mentioned a couple of the Argentinians there for Sao Paulo. Jonathan Caleri is obviously scoring a lot of goals in the Brazilian league this season. He'll be instrumental for them up front. But where do you think Sao Paulo will be hoping to win this game? Yeah, I think look, Sao Paulo often play, you know, they've got three at the back with, with kind of the wing backs really getting forward and trying to give them a numerical advantage in midfield. So I think that control of the midfield will be key. Uh, we also see IDV often playing with wing backs. So I think that that wide getting in behind the opposition in the wide areas will be, will be important and getting control of that midfield. Um, these are two teams that at times can be quite reactive and quite responsive. So it'll be interesting to see who kind of takes the initiative in this game. You would expect the, the big favourites, Sao Paulo, to do that. And obviously they've got the quality to do so. Um, but I think that will be interesting as well. Kind of those duels, those, those, those uh, turnovers of possession, those quick responses from both sides I think will be key in a game which we usually see is quite tight um, I think both teams can counter quite effectively um, so it'll be it'll be very interesting to see how this one plays out um, given it's a final given it's a one-off game and as I say I think that first goal will set the tone for things um, but it'll also be interesting I mean if Sao Paulo score first will they sit back and defend it, it I, I, I wouldn't expect necessarily to do that. So it'll be really interesting to see. But I think those transitions, those wide areas will be key. Uh, getting control of the midfield um, and, uh, yeah, seeing how seeing how this one unfolds. But I think, as we've all said, I think it's going to be a really interesting one with lots of different narratives uh, playing two really interesting clubs that represent two styles of approaching Colombia in South America. Not Colombia, in South America. Um, with you know, with a giant institution with millions and millions of fans um, that's looking to win a continental title uh, against a, a club that's being very innovative in their approach, um, that has this great recruitment, has this great academy, has this innovative uh, view of tactics. So I think you'll see a lot of narratives at play which are reflective of South American football as a whole. So it should be a really good showcase final, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So October the 1st, we will have the Sudamericana final. In the next episode, I'm sure we can look back on whoever is crowned Sudamericana champions. And of course, next month as well, we'll be looking ahead to the big one, the Libertadores final. So with the talk of the World Cup and of course that Sudamericana football behind us, we've got a big month to come. Next month, we'll be talking about those friendlies. We'll be looking even closer to the World Cup with the squad's on the cusp of being announced, we'll be looking at a Libertadores final as well. An important month to come in South American football with, of course, league action getting wrapped up as well around the continent. So plenty for us to look forward to. Um, but of course, 
when we wrap up this one. Thanks, Simon, again for your input this afternoon. Now, of course, always enjoyable. Uh, looking forward to the next one. And to you as well, Tom. Cheers. Uh, yeah, like like Simon said there eventually, um, also looking forward to um, seeing how this all develops. And uh, in the meantime, I'm going to jump up on, jump on the scalonetta. So I'll see, I'll see you there. <laughs> I think we all are. Um, well, thank you very much uh, for listening. And of course, we will be back next month with another episode talking all things South American football. Um, in the meantime, you can find all the latest odds and the betting insight on pinnacle.com. Plenty of other content on the Twitter at Pinnacle and the Instagram Pinnacle.betting with plenty of other sports as well coming your way. Please gamble responsibly. Any odds that were mentioned during the episode were correct at the time of recording, so go to Pinnacle.com to get the latest. And we'll see you again next month.